take if you take something like art, um, like you take a Picasso painting, right? Uh, there starts by being a fixed number of them, but then maybe one gets destroyed uh, in a fire or one gets stolen, right? And over time, the supply available of Picasso paintings reduces. And we see that the value of Picasso's work doesn't change. The actual value of the remaining paintings goes up quite a bit. Hi, Nikhil. How are you doing today? Welcome, very, very welcome on the Desi Crypto Show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a great uh, Tuesday when we are recording. The market is sideways, so not a great thing. Not a lot of ups and downs happening in the market. How do you how do you see it just from your side of the world? Yeah, yeah, we've had like a violent sell off the last few weeks, but uh, I don't really check day to day because yeah, it's just uh, it doesn't really affect my thesis, but. I don't know. Things look fine to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's go straight into it. What's your thesis? You you use the word thesis, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I made the argument that um, that Ethereum will undergo two major changes in the next six months: uh, EIP fifteen fifty nine and proof of stake. And that those changes will profoundly affect the network, not just in its design, but actually in the supply and demand characteristics of Ethereum uh, as an asset. And so what that means is if you buy Ether, uh, like the, the kind of forces that affect its price should be very different uh, after six months from now, which means there's an opportunity here. Um, and we can kind of go into that. So, so very nice. So let's try, let's inform our users. Let's inform our audience um, a little bit about yourself, so they understand whom they're whom they're listening to and where does this. It's a great thesis, and we will we will go more into it. We will talk about it. I would like to learn more about everything what you talked about. Um, it was a great Twitter thread and some great research which was published. But uh, we'll talk about it during the show. So let's hear about yourself a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was, so I'm based in the U S I was born in Boston, Massachusetts and, uh, uh, raised in Texas. And, um, I studied philosophy in college and just graduated medical school. Um, so I'll be starting my medical residency in a few weeks. Okay. And what brought you into crypto? Yeah, it, investing has been a hobby for me for a long time. And I got into crypto around last year, around when the Bitcoin halving event was happening. Um, so that's when I kind of got interested. But um, mostly it's just been a side project for me, uh, something I find really interesting. So you talked about philosophy, you talked about medicine. So uh, a lot of times we see crypto is all about techies and traders. So how come how come a philosopher and a medicine expert, a medicine guy, uh, find find crypto fascinating? What what is your take on it? Yeah, I mean, crypto is interesting because it's so multidisciplinary, right? It just brings together so many different fields. Uh, you have, like you said, the technologists, the cryptographers, and then you have the macroeconomic kind of policy guys and the traders, and and then the everything in between. So 
um, it's really cool to me because it just uh, makes me think and I have to really kind of challenge myself to, to find a different framework. And it tests a lot of people's assumptions too. You have to kind of, it's like a new frontier, right? So you have to kind of think for yourself, which is really nice. Yeah, very nice. Very interesting, and, and it's it's nice to see somebody um, bringing a different perspective than the technologists and the traders. Uh, so, do you, are you uh, are you a self learner in crypto, or you've learned somewhere? How how did you how did you acquire all your knowledge and all your uh, build your thesis? How did it happen? Yeah, completely self taught. Um, I, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, looked at public resources and kind of built my understanding from there. Perfect. Well, so you're more of an Ethereum guy. If I, if I, if I use the word, okay. Um, a lot of people come, we, we've had, we've had, uh, people on our show. They think crypto is nothing but Bitcoin. They don't, they hate the word, even to use the word crypto. Okay. And uh, they say, no. Bitcoin, okay, and really a maximalist of Bitcoin. Um, yeah. What would you? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I I think that will just be disproven over the next few years, and so I'm excited to kind of see it play out. Um, I think you know what people get with Bitcoin is is certainty. They it's a known quantity, uh, which is very nice. But I think when you look further than that, um, Ethereum is going to kind of outclass Bitcoin in every aspect, uh, kind of in particular that you look at. So if you want a store of value, um, Bitcoin has a fixed supply, but Ethereum will have a reducing supply uh, after these changes. Um, if you want uh, like a secure blockchain, Ethereum today actually has a higher security than Bitcoin uh, based on the revenue that Ethereum miners are getting. Uh, and it'll have an order of magnitude more security after proof of stake, even compared to Bitcoin. Um, and so if you're looking at scalability, uh, Ethereum is designed um, to scale and be used as a payment processor, whereas Bitcoin really can't do that. And uh, so I think ultimately, no matter what feature of, of the asset that you're looking at, uh, after these changes in the next six months, Ethereum is going to be vastly superior. Um, and we can kind of talk about this. But the other thing that's interesting is Ethereum is actually going to provide a dividend yield, uh, staking yield. Um, so rather than just buying it and holding it, uh, you'll actually kind of have an incentive to buy Ethereum. I think this is going to cause a lot of people to take a look and figure out kind of what I'm saying and potentially change a lot of people's minds. Yeah. So we talked a lot about the coin. Uh, we talked about the store of value and security, scalability, a little bit on the blockchain side. But what do you think is the biggest utility or the the best best product which can be built or which is being built on Ethereum blockchain? Because Ethereum per se is a blockchain, but there has to be an application built on top of it, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, the simplest application built on top of it would just be uh, like a payment processor, right? But you're absolutely right that um, everyone just sending ETH to each other doesn't really doesn't really give you a full ecosystem. So I mean, it's hard to say what the best one is, but I think that there are so many... Uh, that really change change the world. Uh, so one that comes to mind is is the advent of stable coins. 
So a stable coin is just a crypto token that is pegged to the value of a currency. So you have USDC, which is USD coin, and that's pegged to the value of one US dollar. Um, and this is incredibly valuable because now if I want to use Ethereum as a payment processor, I don't have to send you ETH, which uh, you don't necessarily know if you want to hold that. Now, if you do labor for me, um, I can send you USDC, which is just paying you in dollars. Um, and I can do that over the blockchain. And so um, if, like I believe, the blockchain uh, will scale and the cost of sending USDC will go down very, very low, uh, this is an application that can actually disrupt the credit card industry because it'll be a lower cost provider, right? Uh, and that's just one example. I think there's so many other examples where you have um, industries being disrupted on the blockchain, like uh, decentralized exchanges are another example of this, um, liquidity providing, um, and then the Oracle technologies is another thing that comes to mind. I think the, the way I look at it, I'm going to add some perspective, uh, which which I think from a, from a different side, I'm a, I'm a product person, so I'll add something and I want to I want to kind of uh, give another color to this. The way I look at it is that Ethereum is actually the infra layer. It's that it's a decentralized supercomputer on which significant number of applications will be built and applications which will be providing more decentralized structure. So I would like to see something like a decentralized Uber or or a, or a decentralized um, land records. Uh, app where you can keep all your land records. So these are the two some things which which I go. I think while I am a payments guy a lot, but I think that a great example would be doing something really smart in the decentralized stuff over 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 Ethereum. Yeah, yeah, something like land records. If you look at the NFT space, is already possible, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a, like a decentralized rideshare app would be a little bit more difficult, but I think you're right that in general, uh, what DeFi is doing is, is just asking this fundamental question of if we take the world's smartest minds and we put them on the project of how can we do the same task, but in a decentralized way, what you usually end up with is something that is trustless. Um, and that unlocks value because if I don't have to trust uh, a service to do it, then, well, for one, I don't have to pay the service to do that. Um, and so that payment gets unlocked to providers, to, to customers, I mean. And then uh, two is if I don't have to trust the service, there's a lot less risk involved. Uh, and the, the service won't shut down. There's no risk of, of these kinds of things. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's starting in finance just because that's the easiest place to, um, start. And, but I think that, you know, the potential is so much broader than that. In fact, uh, you touched upon one of my favorite topics about stable coins. Um, I can speak till morning on that. <laughs> it's, it's that, that interesting. It's that fascinating, um, uh, to talk about, uh, I've done personally, I've had, uh, several, I've done a lot of research and a lot of reading and understand it from, from uh, I think 2013, 2014 world, et cetera. So early days of uh, stablecoin, et cetera. So, and I think that time is right where stablecoin will go into uh, metamorphosis 
where we will see the next genre of uh, stable coins coming out. Um, I don't know where it will go. It will be a pegged one or it will be an algorithmic one. But I think I have my own take, but I think there will be more and more um, fascinating use cases which will get built there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that how that develops, especially given um, the potential for central bank digital currencies as well. So like a lot of the utility here is bootstrapping the crypto industry uh, into the mainstream uh, because stable coins really give you so many use cases. Um, but if there was a way that you could have a US dollar coin that was actually backed by the US government or a rupee coin backed by the Indian government, you know, like that would be uh, much more robust, I think. Uh, and so it's interesting. I think there's definitely a place for stable coins and innovation in that space. And it's incredibly important now. Uh, but it'll be cool to see if, if down the road, if, you know, it almost would be, would be a good thing. I think if we could, uh, if crypto could be so legitimate that these, uh, these tokens representing fiat currencies were actually backed by those governments, you know? So actually you just, so you just actually what you told, uh, I'm smiling because you just actually told about what, what, a. uh, a patent which we wrote like two and a half, three years back, and we have a granted patent where, uh, and specifically it's uh, it's granted in the US, which is a stable coins backed by government treasury bonds. Mm-hmm. So what you just said is government, which is actually government will, will, if they have to back it, they will back it by the government treasury bonds, right? So essentially, so that's what, the, so I, I, I think you, you literally hit the nail on the head uh, just that we we wrote the patent like three years back, and we have a granted patent on that. So it's it's very very fascinating to say that, and uh, it will be interesting the CBDCs if they come in that side. And I would I would love to see my patent being used around that. So, well, that, that, that's why we can keep talking about it till morning. So coming back, I think um, um, we talked about a little bit about some complex words which people would want to know more about. 1559 and proof of stake, okay, which in your view is a six months, uh, it's going from going to six, six months, within six months, we will reach there. Um, I have a counter argument, which I will make as soon as you talk about that, but let's, let's make it a, let's make it a discussion and see where, how we can extract more value. So tell us more about your views about 1559 and proof of stake and where Ethereum is headed in the next six months. Yeah, and I should clarify. Actually, my thesis is over the next eighteen months, right? Uh, but I, but I think that the catalysts, the, the the changes are over the next six months. But then it'll take a full year after that uh, to develop. And so, yeah. So the next six months, we'll see two changes: uh, EIP fifteen fifty nine and proof of stake. So what does that mean? Um, let's start with EIP fifteen fifty nine. Uh, so. The change that EIP-1559 makes is that it'll take 70% of transaction fees, uh, the fees which are currently going to miners, and it'll burn those fees. Um, and that means to literally delete them uh, from the uh, blockchain. And so um, what that does is very concretely, it does two things. One is it reduces the amount of ether going to miners. Um, and since miners, 
are so kind of unprofitable, they're selling a lot of their ether. And so it reduces the amount of sell pressure uh, every day on the market. And uh, the second thing it does is that fee burn actually offsets the new issuance to miners. And so uh, that causes the net total amount of Ethereum to decrease over time rather than increase, um, which effectively caps the amount of Ether uh, and causes it to have a deflationary monetary policy over time. Um, so, right, so just to recap, there's two effects. One is miners normally sell a lot of Ethereum and they won't have as much, so they won't be able to sell as much. Um, and that should allow price to rise. And then the second thing is, if price is rising, uh, there's a new narrative, which is that Ethereum now is a store of value because it is deflationary. Um, and that should, I think, catch investors' attention as price is rising uh, and kind of accentuate that. Um, so EIP-1559 is what that upgrade is called, and that's going to be released July 14th. Um, and after that point, we'll see the fee burn, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, very nice. So, so like, as a miner, is it not is it not punishing the miners <laughs> if I'm mining? Right, means I'm mining. I I need to earn my living. I it's a for profit business, right? So why are you taking seventy percent of my ether and burning it? Yeah, yeah. No, miners are not going to like it. Um, they don't really have a choice at this point. There's some interesting game theory around it because once enough of the Ethereum community uh, kind of gets gets excited or kind of gets invested in in a in a proposition, um, there's kind of two ways that they can approach it. The miners can reject the proposal, and there might be a hard fork where you would have Ethereum fork from Ethereum 2.0, and there would be a new thing called Ethereum 2.0 with, with this EIP-1559 and an old thing called Ethereum without it. The problem is all of the apps, all of the like Ethereum investors, the community, they all want EIP-1559. And so that entire value will migrate to whichever version of Ethereum has EIP-1559. And the miners know this. So the question is, do they want to be mining uh, something that's incredibly valuable for a short time? Or do they want to be mining something that is maybe 1% of the value they used to have? And the truth is, they'll just make more money uh, getting the 70% the reduction in, in fee revenue than they would if they were mining um, a worthless hard fork. So it's, it's some difficult game theory, and you're absolutely right. It's reducing minor revenue. But the reason we can do it is just because right now uh, there's kind of that much excess in the system. And so when we kind of cut that down, miners still have an incentive to keep mining. Uh, and that's because the Ether is still so valuable. Yeah, no, that no, makes sense. But let's ask ourselves, a little bit more let's challenge us our minds a little bit more we we talked about deflationary assets right and our deflationary supply okay and and because there's burn which is happening uh, and we also talked about store of value right <clears throat> so i think that if there is a store of value today be it a, a fiat which is dollar pound euros 
INR, JPY, etc. Or it can be even um, even commodities like uh, like gold, etc. They are not deflationary in nature, right? Almost all of them have uh, have an increase in supply, right? Are they infinite in supply? No, but they will almost I almost all of them have an increasing supply. Um, now there's a little bit of a controversy that supply of uh, fiat can be uh, can be is artificial. You can press a button and you can keep printing dollars, but <clears throat> there is it's the point argument which I'm making is that it's not deflationary in nature, right? So why do we want? Uh, why do we think that deflationary um, deflationary phenomena of Ethereum makes sense? Once again, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm yes. just putting a counter argument to rack our brains a little bit more on it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, that's it, that's interesting. I I think that you you know the first thing to do is take a deeper look at at these other proposed stores of value. So I actually think that some of them are deflationary. Um, so you're looking at kind of the most common thing like gold, and I agree, gold would be inflationary, and, and fiat would be inflationary, right? Um, but if you take if you take something like art. Um, like you take a Picasso painting, right? Uh, there starts by being a fixed number of them, but then maybe one gets destroyed uh, in a fire or one gets stolen, right? And over time, the supply available of Picasso paintings reduces. And we see that the value of Picasso's work doesn't change. The actual value of the remaining paintings goes up quite a bit. And we see these you know, $60 million paintings or $100 million paintings being sold at the art museums, right? So one would argue a Picasso painting is an excellent store of value. Um, the other point I'll make is actually one that people use to compare gold and Bitcoin is they look at the stock to flow ratios. And the stock to flow ratio measures the amount that is currently circulating versus the amount of new supply. And so the only assets that you can have a stock to flow ratio on are assets where the circulating supply is inflating because you need new flow, right? Uh, and so in order to argue that uh, something is a better store of value, one common argument is that it has a higher stock to flow, which means there is less inflation of the circulating supply. So they'll take a list of assets. They'll say the one that's inflating the least is the, uh, the best store of value. What I'll argue is that an asset that's deflating is inflating even less than any asset that's inflating. Um, and that's actually like the least inflationary you can get is if you're deflating something. Um, the other thing is just commonly in economics when people think about deflation, what they'll say is that what, what a deflationary uh, economy looks like is one where if you take your money in cash and you put it under your bed uh, and you don't touch it, uh, your purchasing power will actually go up, right? Uh, no. And so, sorry? It'll go down. So that's in an inflationary. Oh, okay, fair enough. Okay, okay. fair enough. But okay. in, in a deflationary economy, if you put your cash under your bed, your purchasing power will go up uh, because you, you put your $1 under your bed, uh, there's fewer dollars, uh, there's the same amount of goods, so now $1 can buy more goods. Um, so in a deflationary environment, that actually means even fiat, 
would actually be a better store of value. And you can see this when you look at actually historical periods where fiat currencies are in a deflationary kind of environment. So like when the US dollar is undergoing deflation, you're actually able to buy more goods with your US dollar than you were before. Um, and so it's like direct evidence that that's what allows something to store value is, is that it, uh, it actually deflates. And the key question is, the key question is always, how is the supply changing relative to uh, the fiat currency that you're using to purchase goods, right? And so uh, it's not to say that other things don't store value well against the US dollar, for instance, but it's just to say that when Ethereum is deflating, it'll store value even better. Very interesting. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a fair point. Okay. Uh, let's go to the next one. I think this is this is good good um, argument. Let's go to the next one. Let's talk a little bit on the proof of stake, and let's educate more. Um, so, what's going to happen in few months? Where is where is Ethereum going to proof of stake? Tell us a little bit more here. Yeah. So um, right now we have a proof of work consensus mechanism, which means that there are miners, they do computational work called the hashing algorithm. Um, and in return, they get new Bitcoin uh, issuance or new Ethereum issuance, right? Um, and when we move to proof of stake, you no longer have miners. Instead, you have what are called stakers, which means that stakers will buy Ethereum and they will put it up, stake it in a node, and then they'll run a node uh, that, that validates transactions and secures the network. So how does this work? Well, two reasons. One is, like with mining, there's an incentive to mine that you get this new block reward and you get the fees. So stakers who take the Ethereum and stake it are incentivized to do that because they get the issuance and they get the fees. Um, the on the flip side, this actually has an interesting thing because there's now also a disincentive to attack the network because you've staked your Ethereum, which means if you are a malicious actor and you uh, kind of create an issue in the network, your Ethereum can get slashed. And that is a much more powerful security mechanism than the proof of work system. And it's much more efficient. Uh, the reason that matters is because it, it takes a lot less Ethereum staked to secure a much larger system. Um, and so the amount of security you're going to get from a proof of stake system is just going to be an order of magnitude higher than a proof of work system. Um, and so, so the other big thing is that staking brings a yield to the table. So now if you're holding Ethereum as a long-term investment, you can stake that ether and you can receive uh, a dividend yield. And that is um, a substantial difference than people who were holding Bitcoin in the past and were just holding it through thick and thin. Now you actually get compensated to hold the Ethereum. And that makes it uh, kind of more comparable to other investable assets like stocks and bonds that have market caps uh, much, much higher than Bitcoin or gold do today. So Fair enough, absolutely perfect, beautiful. And so when you stake, where will the where the additional ether come from for to get yield? Is it not actually increasing the supply then? Yeah, so the additional ether comes from issuance, which increases the supply. 
But as we spoke about earlier, EIP-1559 will already be in effect, and that will be burning new, uh, new burning Ether as well. And so there's an increase from the issuance, but there's a decrease from the fee burn. And the net change is a net decrease in the overall supply. So sure. that's really novel, yeah. <clears throat> so now I'm going to go back a little bit more to basics, okay? Because I think this is something which, which uh, at this point of time will be very interesting for people to understand and, and appreciate. And what better that it's coming from you at this point of time. Um, so gas fees, which we all talk about, okay? But my question, and which I want to lay a foundation here, and I don't think that a lot of people will understand, where does the gas fees go? Who, who earns it, right? Okay, does, does Vitalik earn everything? Right? Who earns that gas fees? So give us, a, um, give us a, a little bit more education there. Yeah, so when you have these nodes, whether it's a miner or a staker, they're processing the transactions, right? Um, but the order they process the transactions in matters because they can only process so many transactions at a time. And so uh, in order to kind of get my transaction processed before your transaction, if everyone's trying to transact, um, I'll pay a fee. And if I pay a larger fee, uh, I'll go first, right? And so that fee goes to the miners, uh, the validators of the transaction, and it's an incentive to them to validate my transaction first. So it goes to the miners and uh, the miners earn it as revenue and uh, it's a part of their revenue, right? Because they're also getting another part of the revenue from what's called block reward, which is new issuance. The stakers, it works the same way. Part of the staking revenue is from new issuance, but part of it is from this revenue from transaction fees. Um, remember, all of the transaction fees are not going to be going to stakers, just 30% of it because 70% will be burned with proof of, with EIP 1559. Um, but yeah, that's where, that's where the fees are going. Very, very nice. Thank you. Thank you for um, an education here. So let's go a little bit more on, um, on proof of stake moving. Do you see that there might be, because there is, so there is another argument which comes. So you're moving from a, from proof of work to proof of stake. Right. So two arguments come. One, in proof of stake, are you not making the rich richer? Whoever has more points to stake gets more fee revenue, if you will. Right. And this is where we try to explain a little bit. Are we? Uh, so are, isn't that what we are propagating? The second point is that there will be miners who will have to change significant amount of their uh, their machines to go to proof of stake and do we see that there's a possibility of working there and having each one dot and each two dot Yeah. So I guess first I'll answer the the kind of second the second question. So yeah. So miners, it's not even that they have to change their hardware. It's just that they there's no more mining after proof of stake, yeah. right? So they kind of shut down. I think what is more likely to happen is that they'll sell their hardware or repurpose it and uh, start mining, mining something else. else. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's not the worst thing for them, but they're not going to be happy about it. Um, is there a possibility of a fork? Absolutely. Um, I don't think it's necessarily very likely, mainly because the writing is on the wall a little bit at this point. 
so miners know this is happening. They could be putting up a bigger fight today, for instance, uh, to kind of avoid it coming down to the end. And there's certain economic incentives that are being discussed to kind of lock this in as well. So people are discussing, for instance, uh, having miners uh, in the same proposal that onboards proof of stake. Uh, the proposal would guarantee that mining uh, block reward would continue for 12 more months, for instance. So that would be hard for miners to turn down because in a fork, uh, their revenue would kind of continue forever, but it would be worth you know 99.5% less than it is now because it'd be on a worthless chain, right? Versus if they have 12 more months of block reward and they get this incredibly valuable new proof of stake uh, Ethereum, that is worth a lot of money. And it's possible that that's worth more money than they'll ever make on a, on a forked chain. And so there are things like that that we can do to prevent a fork, but it's possible that we fork. Um, the other thing, uh, and, and that's something that the, you know, the developers know more about. I'll have to dig into that, honestly. Um, but the, the other thing you mentioned, what was the other thing you mentioned? It was about rich getting richer. That yes, actually- rich getting richer. Yeah, so, so there's kind of two two aspects to this one is 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 like kind of income inequality and one is is decentralization so i would say just taking rich getting richer on its face is is just uh true kind of no matter what proposal you do it's not actually specific to proof of stake so let's say i come up with a new technology that allows Ethereum to scale infinitely better than before and all of the Ethereum uh goes up a uh, thousand X. Well, like it makes the rich people who own more Ethereum way more wealthy than the poor people who don't. Right. So all staking is, is just more returns to all staking yields are, are just more returns to Ethereum. Because the truth is if I have one Ethereum and you have a thousand, we can both stake all of our ether. And so the like per ether, uh, the returns are not higher to people who own more. Right. It's it's all the same, but you're right that if you just start out with more money, uh, then the more Ethereum goes up, the more you'll get rich. And this is not even specific to crypto, right? This is this is the world. So uh, people have seen like uh, rich people are more likely to own stocks than poor people, right? Um, and this is a cause of income inequality, right? Because that means the rich get richer. The rich own the stocks, stocks go up, and the and the, you know the people who are in poverty don't own stocks, and they continue to be in poverty. And that's a problem. Um, but it's a problem for every asset, and it's a problem that isn't specific to crypto, and that proof of stake is not going to be trying to solve. Right? There's a separate problem though, which is that could proof of stake centralize a lot of the holding of crypto? Right? Because new issuance is accruing to these these big holders, these big stakers, uh, and then the fees that are being burned are from kind of the smaller pools. Um, I I think that in the short term we probably will see a lot of centralization in the same way that we see Bitcoin hodlers having these huge wallets. So we'll see like the number of Bitcoin wallets with over a thousand Bitcoin is going up, and that's a source of centralization. And I think you'll see a similar dynamic in proof of stake initially. Uh, In the long term, I expect that to change in a few ways. One is that centralization is a form of risk, even if you have a big wallet. So you'll likely want to stake uh, geographically diversified way. So if I have a thousand ether, 
I'd rather stake my 30 ether in 30 different countries than all of it in one place, right? It's just less risky. Uh, and then the other thing is once yields go down, which I expect them to go down significantly, um, then there's a lot less value in kind of one person holding all the staked ether because that person is, there's an opportunity cost. They could be investing that elsewhere. Uh, and so I think you'll start to see uh, the ether recirculate after that point as well. So very nice. Uh, so that gave a lot of perspective. So good answer, good, good education. I think it was, it made a lot of sense. Um, so a couple of more points we want, I want to touch on. And one is we do a lot of times talk about Ethereum to be an experiment, right? It's an experiment in the decentralized space and it's proof of work. It started with that. It's evolving much faster, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Do you think that it is the blockchain of the future? Is this the experiment which is going to be successful? Or do you see that there will be something more better, faster, smoother, smarter will come or has come? Yeah, I think it'll be the blockchain of the future. The main reason is because the Ethereum community has this culture of moving towards the most decentralized, secure, scalable option. And so if something were convincingly better, I think that Ethereum would adopt that into its blockchain. That's the great thing about the Ethereum culture. Um, so the reason that Ethereum doesn't have the technology that Solana has is not because it can't or because it's dogmatic, but it's because there's a genuine disagreement about the architecture of something like Solana versus something like Ethereum. And um, that's, I mean, that's okay. So um, I think I currently believe that Ethereum is best positioned to be the blockchain of the future. Um, but if that were to change, what it would require is for the entire Ethereum community to like really just overlook something for, for there to be a fundamental disagreement that Ethereum was on the wrong side of, um, because Ethereum's is flexible and, uh, that's a strength. And so if there were a change that even Ethereum believers thought was just a newer, better technology, you know, a different consensus mechanism after proof of stake is invented, it's very likely that Ethereum would move to incorporate that into its blockchain. Um, and so Ethereum continues to get stronger. Very nice. Perfect. Now, it'll be not right if I don't ask you this question because a lot of uh, this one, your, your research covers, and it's a very interesting topic, and it's about staking derivatives. Uh, you seem to be very excited and very... Um, very positive and hopeful about staking derivatives is going to be the future. That's where the the uh, a lot of trading will move towards. So, uh, give us a little bit more perspective about that. Yeah. So, all a staking derivative means is that when I take one ether and I stake it in a node, right now it might seem that it's trapped, uh, but there could be a derivative, which is a token that represents the underlying ether that's been staked um, that kind of gives me liquidity. So what that means is if I stake my ether, instead of being worried that I can't sell the ether, uh, I now I'm given a staked ether, STETH. And if the price of ether goes up, I can sell that to kind of move my money out of ether without unstaking it. Um, and so I kind of write about how the implications of that are that all of the ether is likely to become staked. Uh, and not literally all of it, but 90% uh, of the supply will eventually be staked. 
and um, that causes a squeeze. If if demand stays constant and supply goes down, uh, that should cause a squeeze, right? Um, and so the implications of that are are really positive pressure on price. Very very interesting. Um, well, I think uh, we are coming to almost the end of our conversation. I have one. Uh, I I want to ask you one improvement you would like to see in Ethereum means not one uh, EIP one five fifteen fifty nine or proof of stake, but something more which you think should happen from here on. Something which yeah. is yeah. I think there's some few future EIPs that are being worked on to improve the user experience. I think that's gonna be the key is is once we get through the next six to 12 months, we'll have proof of stake, we'll have sharding, we'll have layer two scaling, EIP 1559. So what's left? Well, what's left is to really compete because now we have a mature blockchain that can compete with traditional finance. So that's when you have to start making it look pretty, make it easy to use, uh, intuitive for people. And then you'll see just organic adoption. So that's, I think the biggest change. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree, and I would also add. I think the one of the biggest problems in the practical world I see, and I'm going back to your first example about USDC, that uh, if you if I've done some work for you, you can send me USDC. Yes, you can. I get USDC, but hey, I can't use it until I have Ether. Well, you that's changing, thankfully. But you're right. Uh, so, like right now, Visa, Visa, the credit card company, is is willing to settle transactions in USDC. Right? That's a big shift. But I agree, it's just the first shift, and it a lot no, needs but to. Look, well, my point is that I I get uh, in my wallet USDC. You send it to me, but I can't send it to someone until I have Ethereum in my wallet. Right? Ethereum is the fees. Yeah. So what's interesting is is what if Visa provides the Ethereum? For the transaction when they settle in USDC, right? So that's the interesting thing is it, it, right now you might be right, but this is where we talk about the user experience exactly. And it's that I don't think the future is all of us buying Ethereum ourselves to be able to transact in other currencies. These these applications will have to do it for us, right? And so you'll have automated providers that either have large supplies of Ether or buy large supplies of Ether in order to facilitate the transactions. Um, but yeah, that's I completely agree with you. Yeah. So I think that's that's kind of fascinating thing to to look at, uh, and that I think that will be needed in the future. Uh, so good, I think I. So, do you on a personal note, do you just keep on, keep on stacking ethers? Yeah, yeah, just uh, keep stacking. Yeah. Pretty simple. There's like you don't want to get too fancy with it, or you'll you'll end up like making a big mistake and. Maybe you don't want to pay too much taxes if you keep selling and buying and selling and stuff. So you just have to hold on tight, enjoy the ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like um, hey, uh, you are looking at you are looking at what uh, maybe what fifteen uh, x no fifty x thirty x from here at least if it is one fifty k more than that right something like that yeah something like that yeah exactly <laughs> which is like so hey why would I why would I have another coffee? I can I can live without it. <laughs> you just put it back, and it's just like a, another maybe eighteen to eighteen months, and let's just give it a little bit of a uh, push, and you can have thirty coffees in that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, on a lighter note, that was nice. It was great con- having a conversation. It was great talking to you, Nikhil. I think you bring a very uh, very deep 
perspective you it is it is amazing to see how much you have self taught yourself about a complicated topic uh, i we see a lot of people trading more maybe even building more but we don't see people understanding the mechanics and going into deep into into figuring it out by what is going on um, under the hood okay or not even under the hood inside the engine right so <laughs> it's literally that yeah so i think it was it was a great great conversation i hope uh, you enjoyed the conversation as well so thanks for thanks for providing your inputs to our users i think the first thing we should do is buy some meat and hold it <laughs> sounds good uh, thanks for having me thanks again thank you